Good stuff. Good, good stuff. Hey, today I want to start out with a question. All right, it's going to be on the screen. It's, it's a question that I think will help us get into landing the plane on the Sermon on the Mount today. The question I want to ask you is this. If simply believing, okay, if just simply believing was all it took to make your life better, how much better would your life be? All right, if, if just believing was enough to make your life better, how much better would your life be? And think about it in these different areas. Here's kind of what I mean by that. Take, uh, for instance, your health, all right? If just believing that I should eat this type of food and these amounts and I should avoid these types of foods and those amounts, if just believing and knowing the basic science behind nutrition made you healthy, how healthy would you be? All right, let's take another fun one. Let's talk about like our fitness and exercising, all right? Imagine that instead of having to put on yoga pants, and, and again, that's just ladies. In Leviticus, it says, thou shalt not wear uh, yoga pants if you are a male. Um, it should be stoned. Uh, I'm just kidding. It doesn't say that. If instead of doing exercise, instead of running, instead of um, working out, instead of doing those things, all it took was believing the basic principles of calisthenics and, and jogging and, and things that you would do to work out. If all it took was just knowing those things and then believing those things to be true, if all that it took to get ripped was just believing those things, if all that it took to get back into that bikini or to get back in the wedding dress was just to know those things, how much better would life be? Or let's talk about parenting, all right? Imagine if instead of having to actually put the phone down, engage with them, talk to them, discipline, cook food for them, nurture them, give them positive encouragement, instead of having to actually do any of that, all you had to do was read a few parenting books to understand the basic tenets and principles of parenting, and they would just turn out to be just great shining citizens. How awesome would that be? Or let's go real personal. What about money? All right, what if instead of this crazy idea of only buying things that you can afford, and, and what if instead of just, you know, budgeting, all you had to do was like sit in a, a week-long Dave Ramsey class, understand the basic tenets and principles of, of don't spend what you don't have and, and, and save more than, than you will save what you need to be, so that you can live to pay off later things and everything else like that. If all it took was just believing that those were the basic principles, that's how like family economics worked. What if, and how much better would your finances be if all it took was believing and knowing? It'd be awesome, right? If that's all it took was just believing and knowing, it would be great. And see, what I want to talk to you about today is what if knowing isn't enough when it comes to the thing that's really most important? See, if we all can just like collectively and we get giggles and chuckles out of it, we know that knowing things about being a good parent is enough. We know that knowing things about our health is enough. We know that we, when you just know some things about our finances, that's not enough. And our fitness, that's not enough. That knowing is really not enough in any of those areas. But why, when it comes to the thing that's really most important, is knowing, is believing, enough. So I wanna to talk to you today about this thing that Jesus brings to our attention. Because he understood this dilemma. He understood that our greatest hurdle in our faith wasn't going to be knowing who he was our greatest hurdle in our faith wasn't necessarily even going to be believing in who he is. 
And Jesus comes on the scene, and the passage we're going to read today, he says something that's, that's kind of alarming to us. He jumps on the scene, and what he says through the passage that we're going to dive into today is he actually says that believing in me is one of the most dangerous things you can do. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to go to Matthew chapter 7. What we've been journeying through is that Jesus, he invites us through this Sermon on the Mount into what we've been calling a with God kind of life. That, that in the same way we would know that just believing the right things to do about my health doesn't make me a healthy person, Jesus says in the very same way, it's not just enough to believe in who I am. That it takes actually doing something. Now, before we jump to this other side of the pendulum where people go, well, well, I'm saved just because I believe something. And the other side of the pendulum going, well, I just do all these things. And because I do all these things, I'm saved. And so one day Jesus is gonna show up. He's gonna have a, a, a notepad and a pen and paper and he's gonna go, okay, um, name. I'm gonna mention my name to him. He's gonna say, okay, let me make sure you did all the right things and then you're in. The passage we read last week, it proved all of that was false because they showed up at the pearly gates and they're going, Jesus, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many miracles in your name. And Jesus goes, I don't know you. It's because he said, it's possible to do things in my name, but not do things for me. It's possible to do things for me, but not live a life with me. It's, it is actually something that's possible to be used by God and not be known by God. And that's alarming. And so what Jesus does here is he says, my goal, and I, and I want you to understand this and see this through the entirety of this, this sermon I'm preaching through, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is I want you to see that what God is after in your life is for you to live a with God kind of life. And we said this, we said this from the beginning to the end of this, it is impossible to live life for God if you're not living life with God. And Christmas says it, it's, it's, it's literally in Jesus' name. They called him Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us, not just God for us, not just God in our favor, not just God cheering us on, not just God sending good vibes our way, but God with us. And every day in the broken parts of life, in the mundane parts of life, in life's victories, he actually says, I am God with you. And he comes to this end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, listen, I wanna be with you, but there is a true way for me to be with you and there's a false way and you're gonna maybe even think I'm with you and I'm really not with you because you're just with yourself. And he lays it out and he's gone through four different things he's talked about. He's talked about a straight path, a narrow path that leads to life. And he's talking about a narrow gate and a wide gate. And he's talked about true prophets and false prophets. And he's talked about true disciples and false disciples. And now he comes to this place here where he's beginning to talk about, okay, take all this in. Take all this in. And right before the passage you're getting ready to read, he says the word. Matthew 7, 24, he says, therefore, which we should, anytime you see, again, you see a therefore in the Bible, you should always, and again, it's cheesy, but anytime you see a therefore, figure out why it's therefore, okay? So the reason it's therefore is because everything they said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, up until that therefore in Matthew 7, 24, he's talking about all of that. So to recap some of that, all of those things he's talking about there is describing and explaining to us what is being offered by God in a with God life. And again, I wanna recap some of that with you so that we don't miss it. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for like 28 weeks. It feels like more, it may be more, but we've been going through that. So let's, let's dive back through and see everything that we've talked about thus far 
through the lens of this is what with God life looks like. First, it's a life where you are blessed beyond measure when you are poor in spirit. A with God life, it's one where you're blessed when you're mourning, meek, hungry, and thirsty, and merciful. It's a a with God life is blessed when it has a pure heart. It's a blessed life when it's making peace. With God life equals being salt and light to a world that is in darkness and decay. With God life equals being people that are not driven by our heart's desires just to go just far enough to not break the law. But a with God life is one that has our hearts set on keeping a rhythm with the love of God. A with God life isn't pretending out in public, but it's pouring your heart out in these private secret moments with God and he rewards you in a way that it experiences in private, but other people will see the rewards in public as you now live as someone with nothing to hide. A with God life is a life of unprecedented personal security, full of peace. No longer living anxious about where you fit in and will you be enough or will you have enough? It's a life where you have unfettered access to go to a father, to ask him, to seek him, and to knock on his door and to know that whatever you ask for in his name, he will provide. It's a life, a with God life, that goes out of that confidence that you now have a God who chose to not treat you like you deserve to be treated because of your sin, because of your mistakes, because of your failings. You have a God who chose to not treat you how you deserve to be treated, but chose to have mercy on you. So now a with God life looks like you going out and treating other people the exact way you wanna be treated. He says, this is a with God life. And this is what I'm coming to offer you. But this with God life can only be lived and experienced with me. And if, and this is what he's gonna walk through in this passage, if you live this life without me, how he ends this whole passage, the last words out of his mouth of the greatest sermon ever, ever preached, he said it fell down with a great crash. And friends today, my whole hope, my whole prayer, my whole purpose in preaching to you is so that you would live a life, a with God life that avoids the great crash at the end that you live a life on the firm foundation of God and a relationship with him so that he's able to withstand the storms that this life brings. So let's go to his word. Matthew 7, 24. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put it into practice is like a foolish man. The better translation for that word foolish is even moron. It's like a moron. Built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew, and he beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So let's compare and contrast some things that are going on in this passage. And, and most everybody in the room or watching online, you, you've heard this passage before. We, we teach it out uh, to our kids' ministry. We teach it in student ministry. It's one of the, the most basic parables that kids get to memorize and understand, this idea of building our house on the right foundation. I want you to see some, a few things here. 
First thing is, I don't want you to think that when he gives this parable, he's talking about um, a religious, faithful, church-going, modern American evangelical person as the wise person, and then the fool is the sex, drugs, rock and roll, modern-day hippie, activist, whatever you want to call them. No. He says, both of these men put their lives under the authority of my word. Both of them were hearers of the word of God. Which to put it in our, our, our modern day and kind of apply, I would think what Jesus is talking about here, he's saying both of these men lived in the same neighborhood in the suburbs. Both of these men got in the same minivan with their wife and drove their family to church on Sunday. Both of these men checked their kids in, kicking and screaming, one on the arm, one on the hand, and checked those kids into children's ministry, went and said, hey, man, is there coffee out there yet? No, and kind of begrudgingly came and sat down. Said, when are they ever gonna get coffee back at this church? And came in and sat down and week in and week out, listened to the same words of Jesus. One sat on that side, one sat on that side, and one sat online. That's who they are. So don't read this passage and think, oh, well, he's talking about this, you know, you know this, this person who's there and they're, they're, they're a believer and they're loving Jesus and everything else. And this person over here that, that's building their house on the sand is this pagan, irreligious, whatever person. No, Sam, both of these people could quote John three sixteen and some other verses too. Both of these people knew and understood, hey, what does it take to get baptized? Hey, what do you do with this happen? Both people understood and believed that Jesus was who he says he is. That's both of them. He says, the wise person, they heard the words of mine and they put them into practice. And then he says, but the fool, he heard the words, he did not put them into practice. Which leads me to show you this. The difference in these two men is what they did with what they heard. What I, to put it very simple, doing is what makes a difference. We know this to be true in our health, in our parenting, in our finances. We know this to be true in every aspect of our life that doing actually is what makes a difference. But for some reason, when it comes to our faith, we just go, ah, just believe, I know it. And like we talked about last week, I mean, imagine Peter there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee with his miraculous catch of fish before Jesus has invited him to follow him. He shows up there, he sees Jesus. He's already heard that Jesus can perform miracles. His brother, Andrew, has already told him, this guy for sure is the Messiah, Peter. Shows up, sees him, and goes, uh, Pete, Jesus says, hey, Peter, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Basically his way of saying, I will show you a with God life and you'll blow your mind. And Peter just goes, I'm good. I believe in you though. Insane. That's the last you hear of the guy. Nobody wants that. But for some reason, I think what happens is we go through the whole Sermon on the Mount. And remember, guys, it's a lot, right? And we've walked through a lot of this sermon. And it's not, it's not stuff that's easy. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, hey, you know how you know, we, used to, we used to talk about... Um, just don't go have sexual relations with somebody who's not your wife or not your husband. Said, you've heard that, right? Mm-hmm. He says, okay, that's what you've heard said. Now here's what I'm saying to you. Don't have a lustful thought about a man or a woman who's not your spouse. If you do, you've committed adultery in your heart. Whew, that's tough. How was your week? And he says, okay, you know how we used to just say like, have a good day at work, don't kill anybody. Now, have a good day at work 
And don't think your boss is an idiot. And, and don't treat that annoying employee like they're dead to you. Because what you've just done to both of them is you've killed them in your heart. You've made them dead to you. How's your week going? He, he lays these things down on the line. He says, and if those weren't crazy enough, he, he says to that crowd and to our crowd, don't worry about anything. <laughs> We're like, Jesus, have you seen 2020 and 2021? Brother, have you seen this life? He says, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about what you're gonna get, where, where things are coming from, don't worry. And see, what happens, I think, is somewhere down the line, we took Jesus' initial invitation to Peter, to all the other disciples, to me and you, to everyone who would come after him. And again, his initial invitation wasn't believe in me. His initial invitation, if you go back and you look through scripture, all the times when this happens, his initial invitation was follow me, follow me, which required feet, hands, action, words, legs, all those things. Follow me, this was his initial invitation. And I think somewhere down the line, once we had the whole Bible, we took it and we said, okay, Jesus said to follow him. I see people in the word to follow him. And then we got our Bibles and we went, whoo. We hit Matthew 5, 6, 7 and we went, following him is hard. And somebody came along, whether it's a pastor, Sunday school teacher, a well-intentioned parent maybe, and said, just believe, just believe. And somewhere down the line, we stopped even calling ourselves followers. And we just started calling ourselves believers. Oh, I know him. He's a believer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got, I, I, here's a character reference for that believer. You should hire him. I, he's a believer. Goes to church every week. He's a believer. I can tell because he goes to church every week. The initial disciples, the early church, man, when they would talk about who they were, they literally called themselves, we are followers of the way. We're followers. And see, somewhere down the line, Jesus' initial invitation that was follow me got dumbed down to just believe me. And again, we look at every other aspect of our life and it would be awesome if believing was all it took and not doing anything. And here's where I, I want you to realize that that place where you go, you look at Matthew 5, 6, 7, and you go, this is impossible, is where Jesus wants you to get. He wants you to realize it's impossible. He wants you to come to that point. Now, Satan knows, and this is how he's crafty and cunning, Satan knows that you will never get all of Jesus if you don't first come to that point where you read Matthew 5, 6, 7, and you go, I cannot do this on my own. If you read Matthew 5, 6, 7, you can go, I can do this on my own. He rejoices and he's pumped because he knows that you're gonna kill yourself trying to save yourself. He wants you to read Matthew 5, 6, 7 and go, I can't do this. And then go, well, I'll just believe it. I'll just believe it in my head, in my, in my heart. What Jesus wants you to do though is he wants you to get there. 
He wants you to get to the place where you read Matthew 5, 6, 7, and you go, I cannot do this on my own. And then he wants you to go right back to the very beginning of Matthew 5, 3 and go, Jesus, I'm humbling myself before you. I'm laying myself down before you. I cannot do this life on my own. I, there is no way that I could do this. There's no way that I could not lust like that. There's no way that I could be generous like that. There's no way that I could not have this anxiety on and of myself. There's no way I could do these things, Jesus. I need your help. Like the prodigal son returning to the father has nothing left, has nothing to his name, squandered everything that was his quote unquote life to come into the father and go, will you take me back? And then Jesus goes, yeah, let's get on the dance floor together. Let's do this with God life. And it's gonna, it's, and this is what I think he wants you to understand. Think about the prodigal son. He returned and he came to his father. If you were to sum up that whole scene, I would put it in one word, surrender. Surrender. He surrendered. Remember, remember how what he talked about the prodigal son when he came back? He said, Father, I have ruined it all. And he pretty much said, I am at your mercy. He said, he said, here's what I think would probably be the best thing for you to do with me. And again, it's your will, not my will. But I think the, probably the right thing to do is just to make me one of your hired servants. He said, I'm, sur- I'm coming home. I'm surrendered to what you, you can kill me. You can let me be a slave. And the father says, neither. What you did could have never changed the fact that you're my son. Whether you were out there or whether you're right here, you're my son. Get the ring, get the calf, turn the music up. That's what he invites us to. Now, what you need to understand is that surrender has to keep happening. Day in, day out, day in, day out, day in, day out. You come and you say, hey, uh, God, again, we talked about this last week. Surrender. It's going, showing up every morning, and this was Peter, once he started following Jesus from a strict regiment fisherman, going, hey, Jesus, what are we doing today? What are we doing? And that's the invite that he gives to all of us. Now, the gap between follow me and believe in me, the tension between the gap is this little word with big implications called trust. Trust. See, both the wise builder and the foolish builder, they both believed the same thing. But one trusted that this is actually the way it should be done. The foolish builder said, you know what? It's actually way easier just to build on top of the sand. And if you were in your row, 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 merry boat going across the ocean or go across the sea and you looked at the shoreline and you saw those two houses, his would probably have been bigger. He saved money by not having to go down into the bedrock foundation. He saved money, so he was able to build on an extra patio. He was built on an extra deck. He had nice shrubbery. He had all those things. And so on the surface, his house looked a whole lot better. But what you see in both of those stories is a storm came to both. Both the wise and the foolish were not immune to the storms that this life would bring. And what the storm did is it revealed the foundation that the house was built on. It revealed the trust. And here's what I want you to know, and this is, you gotta know this about your relationship with God, but hear me on this. This applies to your relationship with other people, spouses, church people, small group leaders, everything. Relationships, which is what God invites you into. He's not inviting you to a religion. He's not inviting you to a, you know, a big old set of beliefs and everything else. God's inviting you into a relationship and relationships move at the speed of trust. That's how they operate. That's how they move. You, you wanna know, why is my relationship with God not growing? Trust. 
And if you go throughout scripture, what you see is that's how we see people's faith flourish. It's when their trust in God, show, their faith in God leads to trust in God and that's when faith grows. Because faith is, it's not just going, yeah, I believe. Faith is going, I trust. And I'm showing you that trust by what I'm doing. And we see that over and over through scripture. Think about Moses. Moses had the staff and he started out on the scene, you know, it was just his staff because he was a shepherd. God took what he had and he used it in powerful ways. First on the scene, God goes, okay, throw the staff down. Staff turns into a snake. And then God goes, uh, pick it up. And Moses is like, no, I don't want snakes. Uh, but somehow, you know, again, I hate snakes. I would have, I, that, that I would have never found Trent in the Bible. Uh, I would have not picked it up. Um, <laughs> God would have found a new guy. Uh, maybe God had already tried a couple other people. Moses just happened to be the guy who would actually pick the snake up. I don't know. But Moses picks the snake up and turns back into a snake. All right. Then Moses takes that very same stick and he's standing there on the shore with the whole entire Egyptian army behind him. All right. And God says, Moses, it's so cool how God does bring things full circle. Moses, hold up your staff. And he holds up his staff and the whole Red Sea parts. And they have a clear path to go on through the, guard, go on through the, through the Red Sea. Same, similar story. Uh, Moses dies. Joshua's on the scene now. Joshua's on the scene and they've got another river crossing. And they come up to the river and God speaks to Joshua and says, Joshua, tell the priest, and again, these high and mighty robes, everything else, tell the priest to roll up their dresses, roll up whatever robes they've got, roll them up, go ahead and get out halfway out into the water and I will make it separate so then go across on dry land. God didn't just get them to the shore. And then just like they press a button like they're trying to cross the sidewalk and the water just goes. God made them actually get out there in it. And then the water parted. Jesus did the same thing when he shows up on the scene. Jesus would show it to people who had withered, crippled hands. And he'd say, hey, do you want to be well? They'd go, mm-hmm. Which is kind of their way of going, you can do it. Won't he do it? And, and, and he would go, stretch out your hand. And once he got out there, what would happen? It would heal there's this crazy story. Um, if hands and rivers and seas and everything else wasn't enough, Jesus, the one who would resurrect from the grave, wants to show that he has power to do that. He gets word that his friend, one of his absolute best friends, Lazarus, is dead, like dead, dead. Multiple days, dead. And he just dilly-dallies, man. He's just taking his own time. He's just like letting things happen. He's like, I could, you know, everybody, everybody around him, I mean, the disciples are whispering like, bro, he could go healing, but like, he's probably going to die, man. What's going on? Jesus is, that's a weird move. Weird flex, Jesus. What are you doing? Lazarus is for sure going to die. I thought y'all were close. What happened? Um, then they get there a few days later and everybody's crying. Everybody's in tears because Lazarus is dead, dead. And, and Martha comes out and she starts to have this conversation with Jesus. And through the conversation, what you will find is that she totally believes that he's capable of the resurrection. Jesus says he'll rise. And Martha's like, yeah, I know he'll rise like at the end and everything else. Jesus, you know, she's giving the Sunday school answer. She's Martha mode for sure. She's like, yeah, I know he's going to rise. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I know you believe that he'll rise one day, but I want to show you that he can rise today. And then, she t and then listen to what he tells him. He goes, all right, go and tell the men to move the stone. Now, could Jesus have walked over there and moved the stone by himself and just kind of peeked in? Lazarus, psst, come on out, brother. He could have totally did that. He said, Martha, I want you to potentially be looked at in front of all these people like an idiot with a dead, dead brother inside that cave. 
I want to see where your faith is. Will you follow my directions? Go tell them to move that stone. And if there was ever anything that ever, you know, alluded to what was coming next in his own life, she goes, move the stone. Jesus peeks in. You know, he prays, talks to God out loud, then says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus walks out. And so, like all throughout scripture, we, we see this being the pattern. I believe you. You are who you say you are. And then you call me to do something that is trusting you. And then faith grows because God is proved trustworthy. How many ever um, been in a room or heaven forbid, a bathroom with one of those motion sensor lights? You ever been somewhere with that? Yeah, those are annoying, aren't they? Um, They may save a little bit of money, but goodness, Uh, especially the bathrooms. Those are bad. Um, You just learn what those are and you get in and you get out. Um, So those lights, you know, when you walk in, they turn on, right? But then if you sit down, if you sit down too long, what happens? It turns off, right? And then you're sitting in your chair, and you're, ooh, you're throwing a water ball up in the sky, you know, hoping it triggers a sensor. You're, you're, you're trying to figure something out. I think sometimes in our life, we get into these times where we like, man, if you've ever, this, is, this hit me this week, man, the times in my life where I feel like it's a dark season, usually when I look back, there are times because I quit moving. I quit trusting. I, I still believed, I, I, I still believed in God a lot. I never stopped believing heavy. I never stopped knowing that he, he was who he says he was. I never stopped believing that he was a good father who loved me and cared for me. I never stopped believing that he had called me to do these things. I never stopped believing any of those things, but I stopped trusting him somewhere along the way. And that lack of trust led me to just kind of freeze. And the Christian life is kind of like uh, walking up an escalator that's going the wrong direction. If you stop moving, it doesn't just stop. Escalator's still going. And when you stop, I think it's easy for us sometimes in those moments where it feels dark to look around and go, you left me, God. You brought this darkness on and everything else. And God's just going, would you just get up and like move a little bit? Like, I think Jesus is kind of in the corner. He's been there all along just going, follow me. Get in the word, come pray, come talk. Let's get, let's, come on, man, there's more on the table. And see, that's the thing about storms and being a pastor, it's, it's not fun all the times. And the, and the thing that's probably the most heartbreaking about being a pastor is you see, people ha- you see people build their house on the wrong things. And then you see storms happen. And when I, I've watched it happen, I've watched both people throughout the course of my short time in ministry so far, and I'm, and I'm praying, I see more and more go the right way. But you see people build their house on the firm foundation of Christ, and storms happen. And I've watched some of this happen, even, even recently in this church, as some people have lost loved ones. You watch the storm happens, and you sit in funerals, you talk to them weeks, weeks later, and there just seems to be this peace that surpasses all understanding in their life. And you're looking at them, and you're going, man, there must be something. And you look, you're, what, you're, what you're doing in that is you're looking at people whose, whose house was built on the foundation of Christ. And when, when one person who's a part of that house is no longer in that house, the whole house doesn't crumble down because it was built on the foundation of who Jesus was and that he was with them no matter who else was with them. And then you have other people. And you can kind of see it, you know. And, it, you know, show up once or twice a year, you know. 
you see some stuff that, that you know, you just kind of see stuff. And you, you go, man, I just don't know. I, I don't know. And then something happens. A tragedy, a loss, a job loss, something like that happens. It's a storm. And when the storm happens in their life, whose foundation is not built on God, not built on who he is, not built on a with God life, when that storm happens, what they do is, is they either blame God and they're mad at him or they say he never existed and this whole thing was just a waste of time anyway. And they fall away from the faith. And the great crash leads to the eventually ultimate great, great crash. It will be Jesus going, hey, I didn't know you. You weren't with me. You built your house on something else. Now here's what you need to know about storms. When it comes to storms, I've said this very carefully, God will allow storms to happen in your life. That's why the wise person got a storm and the foolish person got a storm. God will allow storms to happen in your life. And part of the reason why I think God allows storms to happen in your life is he allows storms to happen in your life so that you can see what he already knows is going on. He allows storms to happen in your life so that you can see what your foundation was. He knows what your foundation is. He's up in heaven going, I wish you would build your life. I wish you would quit coming to my word for just information. I wish you would come to my word for application. I wish you would build your life on these truths. I wish you would raise your kids based on these truths. I I wish you would take your cues on your identity and your purity and your finances from my word. I wish you would build your life on this foundation. And he will allow storms to happen in your life so that when the storm happens, you see what you've been building it on. You go, oh, man, I was building my whole life like on oh my. The, the, I, you get fired, fellas. And for a lot of us men, like that's, you meet a guy, fellas, you know this to be true. You meet a guy and within the first five minutes, what do you do? Where do you work? We identify by what we do, by our job, by our role. Before we ask a lot of times, even like how many kids you got? What type of dad are you? You know, we're asking, where do you work? When that identity as a boss, as a carpenter, as a whatever it is, when that thing gets pulled on the rug and the person says, you're no longer valuable to our business or organization, well, who am I then? When your security, you know, stock market's going wild, going crazy, you know, who, who knows what's gonna happen? When all that gets taken under, all that security that you had in money and finances, when the storm comes, well, what then? When that marriage that you said, this is my thing, and I'm just this, we, we are this, and that thing blows apart. And again, we've talked about it before. Mar- uh, divorce is a death that keeps on dying. It's always reminded. You see them at, on Facebook. You see them at Target. You, you, you have to figure out who's going to do Christmas. You see all these things. Well, when that got blown up, what's, who are you then? See, God allows those storms to happen in our life, not because he's mad at us, not because he's trying to punish us, but because this simple principle is true. You can't work on a foundation in the middle of a storm. You can only work on a foundation before the storm. You can only work on a foundation after the storm. And I think some of you, God has been patient enough with you in your life to allow non-life-ending storms to happen. But eventually there's gonna be a storm. There's gonna be one that you either weather and stand at this firm foundation that will be on the shores of heaven, locking eyes with Jesus going, yes, come on in, son. Welcome in, good and faithful servant. Yours is the kingdom of heaven forever and ever, amen. Or, hey, great crash. It only gets worse from here. I don't know you. I wish I knew you, but you lived this life without me, so I don't know you. If I had to sum up this whole passage that Jesus is, is, is finishing here and to put it in a, a, a saying, uh, put it in a words that you can chew on and leave out of here, it would be this, the believing is deceiving. Believing is deceiving. Believing will make you think that you are something that you are not. It'll make you think that your house is on a rock when it really is not. And so what Jesus is after here is not just believing, he's about following. And this idea of deceiving 
Jesus' brother wrote this. He says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only. This is James 1.22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He said, if you just hear it, you're going to just deceive yourself. And so my question today is, like, have you been lying to yourself? I hope you have not. I hope you have not been lying to yourself. And I hope you realize now that Jesus is calling you to follow. James, a little bit later in that, his, his, his book to the churches, in James 2.26, he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Because of faith and the works, they're running on this parallel track. It's like two pedals on the bicycle and you can't get anywhere with one pedal. If it's just, I believe, I believe, I believe, you're not gonna go anywhere. But if it's, I believe, here's what I do. It's, I believe, here's what I do. Then that is a, is a bicycle that's moving forward with the trust and faith in Jesus. So Jesus finished saying all these words and then we see how the crowd responds and this is where I think we should try to get our cues of how we should respond. Matthew 7, 28, 29. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. The, the Greek word literally talks about their minds were blown. We thought about calling this series Mind Blown because that's literally what that means. It was like what Jesus was saying was something that was outside of their mind's comprehension. They were amazed at his teaching. Here's why. Because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now, same thing is true for you in this room. Nothing has changed from 2,000 years ago when Jesus initially taught this. He taught it as one who had authority and he has all authority. Philippians 2 talks about that he humbled himself, he came obedient to the place of death and that he humbled himself and became obedient to the place of death on a cross. Therefore, God has now exalted him to the highest place that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That means that because Jesus was willing to go so low, God has now given all authority over heaven and earth and everyone will stand judgment based off of what they did in regards to who he is. So the question is not, does he have the authority? The question is, have you given it to him? Have you given him authority in your life to do life with him however he sees fit? Because if you have, then you're living life as he sees it. You're living a life where you know for sure that the promise is yours. But if you haven't, confident that God was with me? Because that's really what all it boils down to. That's what I want you to leave here today. Ask that question. What would I do if I knew that God was with me? Today, I'm going to introduce you to my friend, uh, Cassie Strickland. In a second, we're going to take communion, and then I'm going to baptize Cassie. And um, that's how she would answer that question. What would I do if I knew that God was with me? We had some conversations this week, and that's one of the things that you made really clear is I felt like I had this, this feeling like I needed to be baptized. And she honestly kind of admitted, like, I had felt like I'd been going years feeling this feeling, but I'd always talked myself out of it. I'd always kind of just said, hey, not now. This is not a good time. And she finally got to this place where she realized the way I'm doing things isn't working. She hit one of those storms in life and said, I don't like what I see as my foundation, and I want to put it in Christ. And step one of that surrender for her was baptism. And maybe for you, you're gonna see her story, you're gonna see her go under and you're gonna feel the Holy Spirit leaning into you saying, you need to get baptized too. I want you to take one of those cards, fill that out. I'll be down here, you can come and talk to me afterwards. But the step one, seriously, hear me on this. Step one of follow Jesus 
It's going, you're my Lord, you're my savior. I repent of my sins. I'm surrendering to you. And, and time after time after time again, what we see is that first step of surrender over and over again, read scripture, see it clearly. The first step of surrender is into the waters of baptism to say my old life is gone. I'm being raised up as a new creation. And I want to invite you in that today if that's what you feel like Jesus is leading you to. But as you have communion, so we go up and get ready uh, to baptize her. My prayer is that you ask that, ask that question with, with Jesus. Jesus, what would I do? How would I begin to live differently if I knew that you were with me and I was really following you? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. Thank you that it can be true. The same way it was 2,000 years ago on a hillside in Galilee, then as it is right now in this room. And I pray as we have encounters with you now through the Holy Communion that we would really assess, God, where we're building our house, what foundation it is. Is on hearing your words and thinking that's enough, or is it is surrendering and following and believing you, God, not just our mind, but with our life. Jesus, I thank you for the victory that I know you're winning. And I pray you meet with your, your sons and your daughters today, Father.